0: peace be upon you. So there's a quote from Mahatma Gandhi which reads, a nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members. And this is an underlying theme of the Quran. God gives special emphasis to those in society who don't have a voice, who are not adequately represented. The weak, the poor, the despondent, the orphan. These individuals, God calls out to make sure that their rights are respected, that they are given a voice in society. And one of the clear examples of this is in Surah 81, The Rolling. This surah, it's talking about the events on the Day of Judgment. And it starts out, it says, When the sun is rolled, and the stars are crashed into each other, and the mountains are wiped out, and the reproduction is halted, and the beasts are summoned, and the oceans are set aflame, the souls are restored to their bodies. So we have all these amazing events taking place, that the mountains are going to be wiped out, the oceans are going to be set aflame, the stars are crashing into one another. And despite this, what is it that God calls out in the following verse? Out of all this, God calls out, it reads, The girl who was buried alive is asked, for what crime was she killed? That in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this destruction that's taking place, God wants to isolate this baby girl who is buried alive to ask for what crime was she killed why was she being oppressed on earth and this goes to show that god wants to see how we treat the weakest members of our society now there's a trade-off typically the more wealthy someone becomes the less they care about the well-being of others uh, other people And there's a famous study, it took place originally in Berkeley, they replicated it in other uh, areas. It's very simple, and this is kind of anecdotal, but again, it's interesting. What they did is they waited at an intersection for someone to cross the street and wanted to see if the cars would allow them to cross the street. And what they saw was there was a correlation that the nicer the car the individual was driving, the less likely they were to pause and let the the, uh, pedestrian cross the street. And you could say that, okay, this doesn't justify wealth because, you know, you could be poor and still uh, get a really nice car. But nevertheless, it's a uh, identifier that when someone possesses wealth, when someone possesses nice things, that they have less concern for the well-being of others. And there's another mechanism at play. Typically, people who are wealthier are busier and place a higher value on their time. So for instance, someone who's wealthier, the amount that they make potentially per hour is gonna be more than someone who is less wealthy, right? They might be, the less wealthy would be making minimum wage, and then you have someone who's more wealthy might be making $1,000 an hour. So the value they put on their time is more, meaning they have less concern about the time of other people. They value that, look, it's more important for me to get to my meeting than it is for this individual to cross the street. And by having that mindset, it really... It distorts how they view the rest of the people in society. And there was another study. It's called the Good Samaritan Study. These were people who were studying to be priests. And what they wanted to do is to see how they reacted to the story of the Good Samaritan in the Bible. So to paraphrase, the Good Samaritan was there was an individual who was beaten and robbed. And all these passerbys, they went by and no one stopped to help the individual until the Samaritan came. And when the Samaritan came, he not only helped this individual, but he paid someone to take uh, care of him and then came back to check on him. So this individual took time out of his busy day to make sure the well-being of someone else. Now, these uh, people who were uh, studying uh, to become priests, they studied this story. And then they were told, they said, look, you have to get to this location to quickly give a sermon on this topic. So they're, they're rushing to get to the location. They intentionally had it where it's going to take, they're, uh, they're going to be late to get there, just the, the proximity of the location they needed to get to. And in front of the doorstep of the place that they had to go in to give the sermon, they had someone pose as a homeless person desperately in need. And what they saw was despite that these future priests, they studied the lesson of the Good Samaritan, the fact that they were in a rush had them look past this individual to get to where they needed to go. And this is one of the trade-offs, is that the richer someone gets, the busier their lives become. And because of that, it's just less focused on the downfalls of others and how they could serve other individuals. And this is a paradox. So how do we fix this paradox? We have an amazing example in the Quran of one of the most wealthy, if not the wealthiest, most powerful individual who's ever lived on this planet, Solomon. Because when you think of wealth, the example that God has given us is someone who had so much wealth, so much blessings, yet was able to maintain righteousness. And we see the first example in Surah 38. And I'm going to paraphrase. Basically, Solomon was consumed with his beautiful horses to the point that he missed his afternoon prayer. And when he realized what he did, he begged God for forgiveness. And um, it starts... In 38, 34, we thus put Solomon to the test. We blessed him with vast material wealth, but he steadfastly submitted. He said, my Lord, forgive me and grant me a kingship never attained by anyone else. And God gave him this kingship. Not only did he say, hey, you're going you're gonna to be king, you're going to have wealth. In um, 36, it continues, We answered his prayer and committed the wind at his disposal, pouring rain wherever he wanted, and the devils building and diving, others placed at his disposal. This is our provision to you. You may give generously or withhold without limits. We, he has deserved an honorable position with us in a wonderful abode. So how did this excessive wealth, uh, bode for uh, Solomon. Did it create him to become unappreciative, to not think about the 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 ones less in need? And we see that's not the case. In Surah 27, entitled "The Ant," and think about this. If you had to say what is the 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 the, the epitome of the lowliest creature that you can think of, the most defenseless, the one that gets trampled upon, typically someone's going to say, "Oh, it's an ant." And God is in this surah giving us the example of Solomon. And not only his wisdom, his power, but also his sense of appreciation. In 2715, it starts, We endowed David uh, and Solomon with knowledge, and they said, Praise God for blessing us more than many of his believing servants. Solomon was David's heir. He said, O people, we have been endowed with understanding the language of the birds, and all kinds of things have been bestowed upon us. This is indeed a real blessing. Mobilized in the service of Solomon were his uh, obedient soldiers of jinns and humans as well as the birds all at his disposal. So you think this is an individual who had the jinns working for him, had birds working for him, had humans working for him, had the wind in his favor. This is an immense power given to an individual. And how did he use it? It continues in 2718 says, when they approached the Valley of the Ants, one ant said, oh, you ants, Go into your homes lest you get crushed by Solomon and his soldiers without perceiving. Solomon smiled and laughed at her statement and said, My Lord, direct me to be appreciative of the blessings you have bestowed upon me and upon my parents and to do the righteous works that please you. Admit me by your mercy into the company of your righteous servants. Here Solomon, with all his troops, all his might, all his power, He stops to listen to the voice of this defenseless ant calling upon its people to say, watch out for Solomon, that he's taking this this consideration from the lowliest of voices into action with his troops. You know, you would think most people who are on that mindset, that they're going to be marching, they're not going to think the least about other individuals, other citizens, other human beings, let alone the ant. And this is why Solomon was incredibly righteous. This is why Solomon was incredibly appreciative, that despite everything he had, he stopped to listen to what the ant had to say. Are we taking as much cautious and care to listen to the most drowned out voices in society? Are we stopping to say, hey, those who aren't adequately represented, what are their grievances? And sadly, we don't do that. But this is a lesson not just for, you know, we read this, we say, oh, this is a lesson for those in power. This is the lesson for the uber rich, the millionaires and the billionaires. And we fail to recognize this is a lesson for every single one of us. These laws in the Quran apply to all of us. God tells us in 96, 6 and 7, it says, indeed, the human being transgresses when he becomes rich. And we have this idea of what it means to be rich. When we imagine someone being rich, we imagine someone with, you know, multiple mansions, fancy cars, boats, yachts, uh, airplanes, whatever. But rich is relative. Today, the average person is exponentially better off than the generations of the past. You think you look at a homeless person. Most homeless people still contain a smartphone, meaning that you could be homeless and still have access to endless entertainment, have access to endless information. Whatever knowledge you want is right there at your fingertips. This is a wealth that could not have been perceived in the past. But now we take this so lightly. But also, money is relative. Because in the United States, to be in the top 1%, your income has to be above $488,000. This is according to Bloomberg. They published this this report back in uh, February. And $488,000. But in Australia, it's half that amount. $246,000. That puts you in the top 1%. But if you go to the United Arab Emirates, you have to have $900,000 in annual income to be considered the top 1% of that population. But what is it globally? How much do you have to have to be in the global top 1% today? To be in the global top 1% today, you have to have an income of $60,000. This is about the average income that an adult has in the United States making just about most the, uh, the population of the United States in the top 1% globally. Now, we have this you know, mentality. We think that, oh, it's only the uh, Mark Zuckerbergs, the Jeff Bezos. Yeah, they have more responsibility. But by all practical definitions, we are all rich. We all have more voice than they could have imagined in the past. But it's not just wealth that's relative. Power is relative. I'm going to give an example. This is a story. It says, One day, a famous congressman stopped by a diner for breakfast with his entourage. Upon entering the diner, the customers and staff swarmed around the congressman, attempting to shake his hand, take his picture, or have him kiss their baby. As the congressman made his way to his table, his snappy request with his staff made it clear that he expected to be served more diligently than the other patrons. Things came to a crescendo when the congressman demanded more butter for his toast to one of his servers who unlike the rest didn't seem to provide him the special attention he expected. After the third request, the congressman ran out of patience and asked his server if he knew who he was. The server responded, why yes, of course, and asked the congressman if he knew who he was. The congressman, looking dumbfounded by the question, blurted out, no. In which case, the server responded, Congressman, I'm the person with the butter. We see in this interaction that the congressman, for all practical accounts, had the power. He had the entourage, he had the prestige, he had the know-how. But in this one instance, you see that the power was reversed. That it was the server who had the butter who had the power because that is what the congressman wanted. So there's times when we could be the lowest in the totem pole but possess the most power. And we see two examples of this in the Quran. As we read, Solomon had power over the birds. He could communicate with the birds and the birds worked for him. And one day he was inspecting the birds and noticed that one of the birds, the hopu, was missing. And he says, I'm going (laughs) to sacrifice him unless he comes back with a good response. So clearly, Solomon is the one with the authority here. Solomon is the one with the power here. But how did things play out? So when the Hopu returned, he did not wait for long. So this is uh, Surah 27, verse 22. It says, he did not wait for long. The Hopu said, I have news that you do not have. I brought to you from Sheba some important information. Notice how the tables have turned. Despite the fact that Solomon possessed all the authority, all the power, the Hopu had something that Solomon wanted. He had information. And this is what set him apart. This gave him power over Solomon. And it continues i found a woman ruling them who is blessed with everything and possesses a tremendous palace i found her and her people prostrating before the sun instead of god the devil has adorned their works in their eyes and has repulsed them from the path consequently they are not guided so we see that it's not about what it is that you possess in the sense of material uh, possessions but what you have inside your head this information this knowledge can set you apart to give an individual who is the bottom of the totem pole more power over the one who's on top. And we see another example in the same chapter in Surah 27 with the jinns. So when Solomon says that, hey, I'm going to take her palace to basically you know, play this joke on her, uh, it reads in 2738, he said, "Oh, you elders, which of you can bring me her mansion before they arrive here as submitters? One afrit from the jinn said, so an afrit is a powerful jinn. So it's emphasizing this is an individual with a lot of power, a lot of strength. He said, I can bring it to you before you stand up. I am powerful enough to do this. And it continues in 2740. It says, the one who possessed knowledge from the book said, I can bring it to you in the blink of your eye. Notice that the second jinn, it wasn't that he was powerful. He was an afrit. He didn't have the strength, but he had the knowledge. And this is what set him apart. This is where the true power lies is in the information, the knowledge we have. That despite someone's status being higher, it doesn't matter. Take the example of Abraham's courageous debate. When he's debating with the king in Surah 2, he says, God controls life and death. And the king says, I control life and death. Abraham says, God brings the sun from the east. Can you bring it from the west? you realize that it's the knowledge that Abraham had that set him apart, that despite that that individual was the king and he was merely a traveler, that he had the upper hand in this debate. So the more we educate ourselves, the more we learn, then we end up gaining more power. And this is something that we have an even playing field. The information is there for any of us to learn from. And I want to continue on. The fact is we are each going to be tested when we have the upper hand. We are each going to be tested when we have the power. In 28.5, it reads, we will to compensate those who are oppressed on earth and to turn them into leaders and make them the inheritors. This is part of God's system, that we're each going to be tested to be at the bottom of the totem pole and at the top of the totem pole. And it continues in 67.2, it reads, the one who created death and life for the purpose of distinguishing those among you who would do better God is almighty forgiving. How are we going to behave when we have the power? In 10, 13 and 14 reads, Many generation we have annihilated before you when they transgress. Their messengers went to them with clear proofs, but they refused to believe. We thus requite the guilty people. Then we made you inheritors of the earth after them to see how will you do. When we are in a position of power, when we can act with impunity, How do we treat that power? Are we abusing it? Do we become tyrants? Do we become the individuals that we we champion against? Or do we abide by God's laws? God tells us in the Quran, in Surah 42, verse 39 through 43, reads, When gross injustice befalls them, they stand up for their rights. Although the just requital for an injustice is an equivalent retribution, those who pardon and maintain righteousness are rewarded by God. He does not love the unjust. Certainly, those who stand up for their rights when injustice befalls them are not committing any error. The wrong ones are those who treat the people unjustly and resort to aggression without provocation. These have incurred a painful retribution. Resorting to patience and forgiveness reflects a true strength of character. God is going to test each and every one of us. He's going to test us when we have no power, and he's going to test us when we have the upper hand to see how do we behave. Do we abide by God's laws? In Surah 2, verse 190, God tells us the rules of war. It says, You may fight in the cause of God against those who attack you, but do not aggress. God does not love the aggressors. You may kill those who wage war against you, and you may evict them whence they evicted you. Oppression is worse than murder. Do not fight them at the sacred mosque unless they attack you there. If they attack you, you may kill them. This is the just retribution for the disbelievers. If they refrain, then God is forgiver most merciful. You may also fight them to eliminate oppression and to worship God freely. If they refrain, you shall not aggress. Aggression is permitted only against the aggressors. If someone is aggressing against me, I can't lash out at a third party who's not involved in this. Similarly, I have every right to stand up for when I've been injustice. but God is advocating to pardon that we are allowed to have self-defense, but this comes with limits. In 2563, it says, The worshipers of the most gracious are those who tread the earth gently, and when the ignorant speak to them, they only utter peace. The question is, when we have the upper hand, When we have the authority, when we have the power, how do we use that power? Are we using it to abide by God's laws, or do we think that all of a sudden, this does not apply to me? There's a quote from George Orwell in his book 1984. It reads, If you want a vision of the future, imagine a boot stamping on the head of a human face forever. Now, this is a very dark depiction of the future, But many people, they say, look, I am oppressed and all I want is justice. But the second that they get justice, the second they get authority, the second that they are in the majority, how do they use that? Do they use it to bring justice to the people or do they use it to use their boot to stomp on the face of other human beings? Because you realize if it's the later, then all it is, is not that they're crying about injustice. What they're crying about is that they're not the boot that's doing the stomping. In Surah 2, verse 204 through 206, it reads, Among the people, one may impress you with his utterances concerning this life and may even call upon God to witness his innermost thoughts while he is the most ardent opponent. As soon as he leaves, he roams the earth corruptingly, destroying properties and lives. God does not love corruption. When he is told, observe God, he becomes arrogantly indignant. Consequently, his only destiny is hell, what a miserable abode let's not make the same mistake let's not make the mistake that when we do have power when we do have authority that we only use it to victimize others that we only use it to cause injustice and suffering of others to destroying lives and properties let's not spread corruption through the earth let's work to make this earth a better place we have an awesome example in the quran of moses moses was a hebrew His people were being oppressed and turned into slaves among Pharaoh's rule. One day, Moses witnessed one of the Egyptians fighting with one of his people. And he took the side of his uh, people and he punched the Egyptian, killing him. And immediately he repents to God. He realizes that this was the Satan's scheme, that he overstepped the boundaries of what he was allowed to do. The following day, The same individual calls on Moses' help again against another Egyptian. And Moses almost slipped and did the same thing had it not been that the Egyptian said, do you wish to kill me like you killed the person in the past? Obviously you wish to be a tyrant on the earth and not righteous. And at that point, Moses realized that the second he had power, he had authority, how was he using it? He was no different at that moment than the Egyptians oppressing the children of Israel. This is the wake-up call for us, that God is going to give us the turn, give us the opportunity to have the upper hand in situations. But we should not let the devil dupe us and to push us into corruption and into injustice and behaving as bad as the very people that we are championing against. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys want to support the podcast, Please leave us a review on iTunes or share the podcast with other people. If you guys want to go learn more about the Quran, the best way to learn is from the Quran itself. We have the Quran Study app on the iTunes app store. Download it. Leave us a review there. And um, if you got comments or questions, please hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.